right, if you can open your Bibles to Exodus 24. And who wants to read uh, verses of 1 through 8? Who wants to read verses 9 through 18? Yes, please go. And he said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you all shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to Yahweh, but they shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel. And they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9. <coughs> and Moses went up to Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablet with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his attendant, and Moses and Moses went up to God to the mountain of God. But the elders, he said, remain here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Yahweh fell on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, she called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire on the mountain top, in the eyes of the sons of Israel. Then Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for days and for nights. Great. So, just a little review. Let's see if you remember from uh, last Friday, and see. But I really want to kind of get the get the structure that comes into your minds uh, before we're done with the book. So, who wants to summarize in a sentence or two, chapter one through thirteen? What generally happens 
what generally happened in Exodus chapters 1 through 13? Slavery under um, Pharaoh, and then escape. Yep, good, good. Uh, chapter 14. What happened there in chapter 14? The significant moment. That's when the saga in Egypt ends. That's when God defeats Pharaoh and his armies by causing the... The Red Sea to crash over the walls of the Red Sea to crash over the entire Egyptian military. Uh, give me a, give me two, two big, two big things that happened from chapters fifteen through nineteen. Two big things happened in chapters fifteen through nineteen. There are two purposes given. The purpose of the law? And what is the purpose of the law that chapter 15 through 19 tells us about? Point to our salvation. Point to our salvation? Yeah, good. Point to salvation and also it's appropriate pointing to the other nation. Showing other nation. You're almost there. You're almost there. Uh, there's a second purpose of the law. Oh, so first is the question of salvation. Yes. Second. Less is okay. Okay, well, you're you're in the wrong order, but but yeah, that's fine. There was an interesting uh, look that we actually, and I think most of us found out that this Bible study is restore the garden. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Purpose of the law. Yeah, yeah. Restoration of the garden. That's kind of has to tie in with salvation. But what's the the dark side of the, the the other side of the purpose of the law. They can't complete the law. You're close. There's sinfulness, right? You, you see a lot of sinfulness, depravity associated with the law, right? Uh, second purpose, the purpose of the nation of Israel, there to show the the world. Uh, this is this is who our God is. This is who Yahweh is. Okay, that's chapter fifteen through nineteen. What happens in chapter twenty? Now, if you don't know this, there's no no, no potato chips. Uh, giving the Ten Commandments, right? And we learn that the Ten Commandments are rooted in what? They find its basis in Genesis, rooted in the creation and in the fall. And then last Friday we spent we spent three chapters, an entire three chapters, uh, seeing this further explanation of creation theology, the extent of the law, that the, the his holiness should touch every part of our, our lives. We saw we were exposed to Trinitarian theology, right? There's uh, one name and more than two persons. There's this angel who can forgive sins. Uh, there's this angel who is sent. And so we see this distinction between the persons of the Godhead, because in order to send somebody, you have to have at least two people. Chapter 21 to 23 also revealed God's agenda for the world, that one day everything, everyone in the world, all nations, will be slaves of Yahweh. Remember that discussion we have, that, that first, the chapter 21, Moses, uh, curiously enough, begins with a law about slavery. Now this week, I was I watched this interview 
this interview between Bill Maher and Elon Musk. And they're talking about how woke uh, wokeism has kind of really uh, hurt the country in a sense. And so um, uh, Elon Musk, uh, he talks about his uh, uh, situation with his his friend in, in Bay Area. And curiously enough, they will talk about something that really pertains to what we just said. So here you go. Pharaoh is so treating them in a way that God 
rains down ten curses, ten plagues, uh, to bring him to the good slavery. So, there's something, uh, kind of a misconception uh, that many of uh, unbelievers have, and that many Christians don't have an answer for. Uh, but we have an answer for that. We, we know we know better now, because we were here last Friday. So in, in chapter 24, in our, our, our chapter for tonight, we, we're going to take a step back for a moment. And chapter 24 is the, is the context of the law. It's the, per, per, it's, the, it's the immediate context of the law given to Israel. And the context of the law is this, a personal relationship with God. Uh, this context of this personal relationship with Yahweh that his people have, uh, this is the context that the law falls within, the giving of the law. And, and that was first indicated back in Exodus 19, verse 5, when uh, God said, Israel will be my treasured possession. They'll be my treasured possession. So we find tensions within the law. There are tensions within the law. Yes, the law points to our sin. Uh, yes, the, the law points to salvation. But this is the this is the the begging question: Is salvation that we get from Yahweh even something that we would want? Is it good? Is it something to be desired? I mean, because remember this: there was a a moment where the Jews said, you know, we want to go back to the old slavery. This new salvation, this new master, he doesn't seem that good. He doesn't seem that great. And so we need to know for certain why uh, this old slavery, why this new slavery, why we need to know for certain why the old slavery is bad and why the new slavery is a good thing. And this context of relationship, the context in which the law is given in chapter 24, will demonstrate that. The relationship that God shares with his people is going to give hope to the rest of the world. So when the rest of the nation see the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, this is the point. This is the purpose. They, too, will want to have that same kind of relationship. As the world uh, observes the relationship between uh, this new slavery and this new kind of master, they're going to get a tangible picture of what a relationship with Yahweh looks like. As they see, as they see Israel practice this new kind of slavery, where a slave is just like your child, where you treat the slave just as you, you, just as good as you, as you would your own son and daughter, they're, 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 they're supposed to learn a lesson about Israel's relationship with God, and they're supposed to be in awe in wonder, and say to themselves, well, there is, there is nothing like this in the world, because for them, to serve the pagan gods meant always placating their anger. Just the back in the relationship with, between false gods and their followers was a brutal, oppressive uh, relationship, where you would end up even having to sacrifice your own children so that God would withhold his anger against you. 
And so the relationship between Pharaoh and Israel, it was a, a, it was a microcosm of the relationship between every people group back then and their own pagan gods. The ten plagues that punished Pharaoh for bad slavery, and it was also an attack on the false gods of Egypt for their bad slavery. So this new relationship between Israel and Yahweh would be radical, radically different. Um, and chapter 24 captures that theme of relationship. The context, the beginning of the law, is this near, intimate relationship with God and his people. Yes, the law is... Uh, uh, it comes with lightning and storm clouds, and don't you go, you go up, don't you dare go up. Uh, we don't want to hear God's voice. Let, let us hear Moses' voice. And it's also, uh, the law, God wants to give a picture that it's also, uh, to, to be, receive the law means it's related to, it's connected to having this intimate relationship with Yahweh. There's tensions. There's tensions within the law. Um, and this relationship, that theme uh, of relationship, where did we first see that in Scripture? Where did we first see in the Bible this uh, warm, intimate relationship with God? Where did we first see that? In where? Yeah, in creation, in Eden. Then what, what, when do we next see that in Genesis? Abraham. Uh, right, right. Yes, uh, there's uh, Abraham. Uh, when he ratified the covenant with Abraham, there was the, uh, the encounter with uh, God and uh, Jacob's ladder and Bethel, right? God is near us. He's with us. Um, when uh, God put Abraham to sleep, remember when he put, when he put him to sleep and he cut the animals? That was a, uh, it was a, 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 it mirrored when Adam slept in the garden. It mirrored that same kind of relationship. When Moses encountered this blazing fire on Sinai, it was just like the blazing fire that moved through the cut animals when God made his uh, promise with Abraham. So the idea is this, the same relationship that Adam had with God, Abraham had with God. And the same relationship that Abraham had with God, Moses had with God. And this is what the world should be hoping for. And so this relationship with God is this biblical theological theme that runs through the entire Bible. Again, chapter 24 shows that the law given to Israel is given to Israel in the context of love. Yes, the law is uh, scary. Uh, yes, it's not to be trifled with, but it's not, it's not, it's not supposed to be a burden. Uh, you're not supposed to obey God just because he's the Lord of your life. No, you, you obey him, we obey him because we love him in this context of a personal, intimate relationship. Now, we first find this tension of distance and nearness in verses 1 and 2. Yahweh says to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Who are Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu? Who do they represent? What category of people are they? They're the priests. And then you have 70 of the elders. 
They represent who? The people. And so they're invited uh, to come up to Mount Sinai. But look what it says in verse, verse 1. And you all shall worship at a distance. Come and worship me, but don't come near close. Don't come too close. But there's hope in verse 2. So in verse 1, you're thinking, man, can we ever draw near to God? Can we ever have a close, personal, intimate relationship with God? Will it always be like verse 1? Verse 2 says, no, there's hope. There's hope. Moses alone, however, shall come near to Yahweh. But they shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Only Moses can come near. See, Moses is a picture of what? No. Moses is a picture of what? Of the future. He's a picture that one day all of us here will be able to come near to him. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. The same imagery, the same kind of language is used. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and divine grace to help in time of need. So as you read this, what a beautiful picture to have in your mind Moses in chapter 24 coming up alone near to Yahweh and realizing, wow, we have what Moses had. Wow. It's even better. It's even better than what Moses had. Because Moses had to go to, had to come down the mountain. And this was a rare occasion for him. Versus us, we get to draw near to God 24-7. Every day. We get to go to the mountaintop. Every second in prayer. Every second we can come near to God. Uh, this is beautiful. And so... Um, in this new covenant age, we have become like Moses, but even we're, we're better than Moses. Mm -hmm. the, the relationship that God always wanted to have with his people finds fulfillment in the church, in the church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so Moses invites, uh, God invites Moses to ascend Mount Sinai in order to ratify the Mosaic covenant, in order to ratify the law. Uh, this will be kind of the official ratification of this old covenant law. This law that has all these tensions, right? It points to sin, points to salvation. It's a, a thunder and lightning and don't come near, but you can come, but Moses can come near, right? So it's all these, there's all these nuances, all these tensions in the law. Verse three and four. Now Israel engages in this relationship. Then Moses came and recounted to all the peoples all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, 
All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Verse 3, Israel claims responsibility for their, their role in this new relationship with God. And so Moses writes it all down, because if it's going to be uh, passed down to generation to generation for new members of the community of Israel, he's going to obviously have to write this all down. Verse 5, he sends the, uh, the young men of the sons of Israel, and so notice here, it's a kind of pre-Leviticus, and so they're offering offer, uh, well, burnt offerings, they're offering peace offerings, they're, they don't seem to be uh, Levitical priests, and so you don't have those restrictions yet, uh, they're gonna, that, that's going to come uh, when we get to Leviticus, for now, it's just the young men. Some some um, commentators think these were the firstborn. These were the firstborn that were that were uh, uh, that sacrifice was made on on their behalf, and so it could have been that. And so they offer two kinds of uh, offerings. And does anybody remember or anybody know what the burnt offering symbolized? That's the burnt offering. So when you burn something, what happens? It, it, and, and does part of it smoke up, or does part of it burn? If you just let, no, the entire thing burns. The, the entire thing turns to ashes. So the burnt offering uh, was a, it, it symbolized total devotion, total consecration, that all of me, all of me will be given to you, God. And so that's, that's what Israel is doing. They're saying, God, uh, we understand our responsibility. We understand our part, our role, and, and that we need to give everything to you. We need to give everything to you. Then they sacrifice young bulls as a peace offering, a peace offering represented fellowship with God. They have a relationship that the law will be given to them in, in this context of a personal relationship. In verses 6 and 8, now you know that when, when somebody made a covenant, uh, like if we make a covenant, if let's say uh, I sell uh, my car uh, to Sean, let's say Sean wants to buy a, a nice, beautiful, uh, uh, feminine blue Hyundai Elantra, and, and and so we would sign a contract and say you pay me five hundred dollars and uh, you know a month, and we would sign it. Maybe I don't know, you notarize it somehow. Back then in the ancient biblical world, what you would do is what you would cut an animal in half. You would walk through it, and the, the animal was the the, the animal that was cut, cut in half represented the severity for the penalty of for breaking the covenant. And after that, you would have a meal together. Uh, we would cut the animal. We would take some of the meal, and Sean and I would have a nice, nice uh, barbecue lamb chop, right? And uh, so that's what kind of Moses is, is kind of doing uh, doing now um, in verses six through eight. He takes half of the blood, uh, and he put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He's making the Mosaic Covenant this official relationship. He's officializing it. He's notarizing it. He's formally accepting it on the part of uh, Israel. And uh, what is he doing? He's uh, making an atonement. This is a, a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice of consecration. And it shows us that in order to be in a relationship with God, in order to have peace with Him, 
It involves an atonement. And this visible display of blood from an animal would highlight this, this, this concept of an atoning death. Like he, it says he, he first sprinkled it on the altar, then he took of the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. So the blood would be sprinkled on you. And, you know, back then they didn't have like a, they didn't have a, a washing machine and a dryer readily available. And so this blood would stay in your clothes for a few days. It would, you would be, uh, it would be a noticeable symbolic. It would have a quite a powerful effect on you. So you would remember that, man, in order for me to have this relationship with God, I need to be, I need to have blood sprinkled on me. I need to be covered by the blood. And, and so th this is the idea here. God is inaugurating this new system of how to relate to him. And blood is the, is, is what you need to, to, to start this system. Blood is the ignition key to start this new relationship with God, this new system. And the Mosaic Covenant is the first system that regulates God's relationship with his people. And, and that means you need the blood of an atoning sacrifice to kick off this new system of relationship. The blood sprinkled on the altar, uh, verse, verse uh, 6, uh, signified that God was one party in the covenant. And the blood sprinkled on the people showed that they were the other party of the covenant. Now, when Jesus died, what happened? Do you remember what happened when Jesus died? What happened in the temple? The curtain ripped from top to bottom, signifying God was ripping it, since it was top to bottom. And what was it doing? It was initiating a new way, a new system to relate to God. Just like it was in Exodus 24. Just like blood, this atoning sacrifice, the blood of an atoning sacrifice, uh, ignited this system of relating to God, when Jesus died, his blood initiated, it set in motion a new way for sinners to have a relationship with the Holy God. And the precedent for that begins in these verses. This is the precedent. That in order, whenever you start a new system of relating to God, you need the blood of an atoning sacrifice. This is how it works. This is how it works. And so, however, yes, the law uh, revealed our sin. Yes, there was thunder and lightning. But according to ch chapter 24, the tension is this. It is also a system of hope, right? Yes, there's judgment. Yes, there's curse. But it's ultimately a system of hope because of what it points to, right? It points to a better sacrifice, a better atonement, a better system, right? Uh, 
So I, you know, if you could uh, remember when you first remember the Atari, the first the video game thing, right? And if you uh, first got it, you know, maybe you weren't impressed, maybe you were, but uh, even technology today, you know, something's better coming, something is better coming. Uh, a better program is coming, and so you might have a program that might have a bugs in it, might have a lot of problems, but it, it does a lot of good things that you want. And you're frustrated, right, Sean? You're frustrated by it. But you like it because it does what you want it to do, and even though it has all these bugs, you know 2.0 is coming. And you're excited about it. And you're saying, there's a, there's a better better version coming. And so that's this, that's what chapter 24 is. It, ch chapter 24 is hope. Chapter 24 is hope that that there's a there's a new way of relating to God. Uh, now most of you can't come near to God. Now most of you can't come near. Moses, you come up here because you're going to give the people hope that one day God's people will be able to draw near. So that's the idea. So. Now we move to verses nine through eleven. This is this is this is pretty wonderful. Moses and the rest of the group they go up the mountain again, and this time they all go up together. After the blood is cut, after it's sprinkled, they, nine through eleven, everybody gets to go up. Now there's no distance for all of them. Um, see, this is, if Moses was a picture of the, of hope for the future, verses 9 through 11 is even a clearer picture of hope for the future. One day, look at, one day, uh, verse 9, Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sacrifice as clear as the sky itself. One day all of the nation will be able to draw near. One day all of God's people will be able to draw near. Um, verse 10, uh, they're going to be able to, that, that we're going to be able to see the God of Israel. And this language here in verse 10 uh, is a language of the tabernacle, right? Uh, pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. This is language that should remind you of some of the descriptions of, of the tabernacle, the temple. It was symbol of what, what was what, what did the, the, the tabernacle and temple basically signify? God's presence. Yeah, and so God is with them. The glory of God. One day the whole earth will be filled with His glory, and that and what and once that happens. Look at verse 11. Once that day comes, look, he did not stretch out his hand against the noble of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. This is the context of the giving of the law. They're eating with God. They're feasting with God. They're sinners in the presence of the holy God, but verse 11 Yet he did not stretch out his hand against them. Right? True fellowship with God, being enjoyed by this, this group of people representing all the people, foreshadowing a day when 
the Garden of Eden will be restored to the earth. That's why people call this chapter the First Communion. This is the First Communion, where God's people are fellowshipping with him in his presence. And these verses, 9 through 11, especially this context of the, that them receiving the law, um, these verses are, 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 are give hope to Israel, they give hope to the world, and this is the hope, that one day God's people will, will be able to draw near to God, they will be able to commune with him as recovered, as recovered by the blood of an atoning sacrifice. Now, verse 12 through 18, now this is the, this is the actual, uh, this is the immediate context of, of the giving of the law. Now, uh, 12 through 18, uh, uh, God is about to give the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments to Moses. And um, 12 through 18, you give the immediate, immediate context. 1 through 11 is the immediate context. 12 through 18 is the immediate, immediate, immediate context, right? This is the, the framework of the, the law. This is the, this is why we do the law. This is the end goal of the law. So what is it? What's the context? What's this immediate, immediate, immediate context? What's the framework? Why do we do the law? What is the end goal of the law? And the answer we're going to find in verses 12 through 18 is this. Creation. Creation. That the law gives hope to the world that we can have a relationship with God like Adam had with God in the garden. This is the immediate context. This is the framework. This is the goal. This is how, this is what, this is how we practice it. So in verse 12, uh, there, another trip to Mount Sinai commences. Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets which the law, with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So later we'll find out he gives how many tablets? Two stone tablets. And both tablets have all ten commandments. So it's not one through five, six through ten. It's one through ten, one through ten. And one of the tablets uh, represented, this is God's copy. And the other tablet uh, represented, this is the people's copy. So you have you have two, two stone tablets. Uh, so when you read, read children's books, sometimes you see one through five, six through ten. That's wrong. Once in a while, you get a children's book, and you'll see one through ten, one through ten. And then you're like, wow, he, he, he's, a, he's a great theologian. It's amazing. <laughs> Some of these guys, these children's books guys, they really, they really know their stuff. So next time you read a children's book, just look at the look at the, ten, the two tablets and see what's on there. Um, um, so, now, if you compare... Uh, the laws and constitutions uh, given to people, if you compare other nations with Israel's law, uh, one thing really stands out. One thing is really different. No other people group of that time, we have no record at all of a people group receiving their law directly from their God. We don't have a record of that. We have kings giving the law to the people. We, we, we have kings who claimed that a God had instructed them to write down this law to give to the people. But we have no record anywhere in this time period of God himself 
writing down with his own finger on stone tablets and giving that law to a person to give to the people. So this is a really unique. That God himself is going to directly give to his chosen people what he actually wrote uh, the Ten Commandments, right? Directly from him to show what? That these laws come directly from me. That these laws are not the product of a human, are not the product of human invention. And so when Jesus came to Israel and when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, you know, what did he kept repeating? What did he repeat over and over again? He said something else. That you, that you, uh, a parallel that you find in chapter 24. He says he always he says this over and over. You heard that it has been said, but I say to you, you shall do this. But Jesus said, you know what your teachers said? You know the interpretation that they said? I tell you, right? This is the law that I'm giving to you directly from my mouth, the Son of God, to you. Right? He's saying, I'm not, I'm not like copying anybody else. I'm not dictating what God told me. I'm the actual author. I'm the actual author. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's claiming divinity under this concept of Israel covenant law in which the author of the law is also the God of the law. And so you have that parallel from chapter 24 and the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13 and 14. Moses with Joshua is his attendant and, his, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, remain here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her, her are with you Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. So, what does this kind of signify? Just, it's, not, it's not that important. It signifies what? What does it sound like? So, when uh, when Henry and Una went to Tropical Island and left Justin and, and Austin at home, what did they say? Oh, uh, you got you got this. You got your aunt. You got your uh, you got your uncle. You know. Uh, you have all these people, you have, a, you have a big problem, you can go to them, you know, here's twenty dollars, buy all these wonderful TV dinners in the in the in the in the freezer. Uh, they're saying what? We're gonna be we're gonna be gone for a long time. We're gonna be gone for a while. And so that's what Moses and Joshua are saying. We're gonna we're gonna be here for a while. And this 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 visit that starts in verse twelve is gonna continue continue until the end of chapter thirty-two. This is going to be a long visit. Now here is verse, verse 15 through 18. As I mentioned uh, like three minutes ago, what is the context of the giving of the law? What is the framework? Uh, what, why do we do the law? What is the end goal of the law? Look at verse 16. What is it? What is it? Read it and tell me the answer. What's the framework? What's the context? Why do we do it? What's the end goal? It's what? It's creation, right? It's creation. 
And the glory of Yahweh dwelt in Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Right? So this is creation. This is creation. And verse 17 and 18. And, he, and the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop in the eyes of the sons of Israel. Then Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Mo Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Where did we see 40 days and 40 nights before this? The flood. The flood. Now, why is there an allusion to the flood here? Well, you know, you know that, that, that it's the context is the immediate context, framework, purpose, end goal. Why we do the law is creation. So, what does the flood have to do with creation? God destroyed everything, and yet he he destroyed everything. And during that destruction, ironically, what else happened? There was what on the earth? There was peace. There was rest, right? What, what, what does Noah's name mean? Rest. Genesis 5.29. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. Genesis 8.4. In the seventh month, the seventh day of the month, the ark rested upon the, on the mountains of Ararat. God destroyed the world because everybody's wicked. Right? Before the flood, everybody's wicked. No rest. Judgment? There's rest. There's rest. When Moses gets out of the ark, there's a, a second creation, right? He says to uh, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Same words he said to Adam and Eve, right? And so all of this, uh, this, this, the sixth day, seventh day, 40 days, 40 nights, going back to rest in judgment, salvation in judgment, uh, it's, it's pointing to um, this context of creation, right? And so this, this is the main point of Exodus chapter 24, that you have tensions within the law, um, there's some good things, there's some bad things, but ultimately, ultimately, the law is pointing... <coughs> somewhere, to someone who's really, really good. And we can have great hope. We can have great hope um, uh, in this period of the law where for books and books and books you're going to see, it's going to seem like there's no hope with Israel and the law. But chapter 24 is a reminder. No, it, it looks bad uh, now, right? When you see the way Deuteronomy ends, it says, you know, Mount Ebal and Mount, uh, what's the other, Mount Gerizim, right? The blessings on this mountain, curses on this mountain. And there's like a little bit of, a little bit of blessings, a little bit of blessings, and a whole lot of curses. And it's, Moses is saying, you know what? <laughs> yeah, these are blessings, but you're not going to get them. Like, we know where this is going. Deuteronomy already tells us, we know where this story is going. But Exodus 24 gives us hope that where Israel is going for many, many uh, millennia, it's not the end. Uh, Exodus 24 is the end. 
where we'll, uh, you know, we'll enjoy fellowship with him. We'll eat and drink. And so this Sunday, as we partake, partake of communion, I hope you can be reminded of the first communion when uh, Moses and Aaron and Abraham and Abihu and the seventy elders first communion with God. And but our communion is what so much better, right? Because we do have rest. We are drawing near, um, uh, and, and we don't have to be afraid at all. So. Yeah, any questions? Any questions? Yes. Uh, so, I've kind of been slowly learning about dispensationalism mm-hmm. versus covenantalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, when people call this the first communion, mm-hmm. is there a certain framework that they go by? Are they trying to say that somehow, like, you know, Israel is a church or something like that? I don't know. Um, uh, yes, they do. And, um,. I mean, you can say that, but you don't have to say that. Okay. Um, you, you can say this. The same way that these men had fellowship with God in a very limited sense, for one time only, for a few people, the church has an even better relationship all the time. So that's what you share. You don't have to go the next step and say, ha ha, therefore, the church is the new Israel. You don't have to go that far. So it's depending how far you want to go. So, yes, a lot of, I think, the covenantal people say First Communion, but I don't have a problem saying First Communion because I'm explaining to you the what our communion and this communion shares and what it doesn't share and what it doesn't have to say. So, yeah. So they're kind of with, you know, the big difference between covenantalism and, and uh, dispensationalism. You know, they, they use the words uh, continuity and discontinuity. Um, how much of continuity does the New Testament uh, share with the Old Testament? And how much is it not, how much doesn't it share, right? Uh, what 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 is the degree of discontinuity? Uh, and so, um, I think our covenantal brothers would say that it's like there's there's like there's like uh, you know uh, total continuity, right? It, the uh, the church is it, the, the church is the new Israel, so there's like no difference at all. And the dispensational would, would say. Uh, not, not, hold up, that's a little bit too far. And within dispensationalism, uh, there are kind of like a, a range of continuity, discontinuity. Like an extreme dispensationalist would, uh, would, like, would, would really make hard and fast divisions and say, no, 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 no. I mean, if somebody extreme dispensationalist would say, um, oh, don't say first communion. Oh, that's, no, that's, that's, that, that's the wrong framework. We don't want to, Confuse that. So I, I'm more of like, uh, you know, let's say this this is continuity, this is discontinuity. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like a little bit in the middle. So I see I see a lot of continuity between the old and new. So I would say this: the same function and purpose that Israel had, the church has. 
Um, uh, so the role that Israel was supposed to play is the same role that the church plays. Israel was to represent God to the rest of the world and say, look at my relationship, come to salvation. The church says the same thing. Look at my relationship with Christ, come to salvation. But I would say the big difference between Israel and the church is we're not a nation. I'm not a king, right? Um, we don't have an army. We don't conquer nations. Um, Israel was a nation. It did have a king. It uh, it had a uh, it had an army. You pay taxes. Uh, there was a, a whole. You know, it was a theocracy. And so, um, uh, I would say there's that. That's the distinction for me. That we're the, we're, the, we're not the same type of corporate entity. Okay. Uh, but the essential function is the same, but with the difference being Israel was unable to fulfill it. We are because we have new hearts. Because we're part of, we're part of a better covenant. We're part of the new covenant. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the essence of, uh, that's kind of where I stand. Where you see kind of Purposes, yeah. So if somebody, if somebody were to push back and say, "Well, no, you're wrong, and we ought to know Israel." So what do they mean by that exactly? When they say the church is a new Israel, is it like uh, in terms of a replacement? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, I one more thing. So what you see, what you see often with the laws of Israel and the laws of the New Testament is. You'll see, like, care for the poor, care for widows, right? And they're saying these laws that are that you're supposed to care for the poor and widows, these are national laws to be instituted among the entire nation. The church says the same thing, but there, there are the laws are for within the church. Like James's instruction to widows and orphans. Is for the church alone. Believers. Yeah, it's for believers within the church. There's a way you care for widows. You have to be on a list. You have to earn that right to be on the list. Uh, yes, we care about the poor, but it's the poor within the church, right? In the book of Acts, Paul is taking the collection to help everybody in Jerusalem. No, it's just the church. So you have all these law. So uh, you have laws for um, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians. It comes from Zechariah. When Zechariah says, you're, you're, you need to speak the truth to each other. Um, and so, Zechariah says, hey, Israel, you, 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 everybody is supposed to uh, practice this law to speak the truth. Paul says it, hey, church, it kind of shrinks. Hey, church, you speak the truth in love with one another. So never does the New Testament say, take this law and try to implement it in the nation. No, it says just implement it. Care for the widows of the church. Care for the poor of the church. Speak the truth to one another within the church. So kind of, you see a shrinking, right? Everybody in the nation, everybody in the church, right? Because it's different. We're different entities. So the goal is for the world to then look at the church. To look at the church, yes. Treat widows. Yes. Yes. The ones that are, you know, poor. Yes. Among us and say, 
wow, what these people are doing, that's what we should be doing. Right, exactly. When Paul writes to Philemon, he doesn't address it to the Roman Empire. Roman Empire, Pharaoh, I mean not Pharaoh, uh, Caesar, this is how you're just supposed to treat your slave. No, 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 he just says it to the church, to Philemon, right? Uh, or the uh, Epaphrodite, or Papyrus, what's that? I forgot his name. Papyrus, this is how you're supposed to treat him. You see? It's not a national law. Paul's not saying this is how you're supposed to do it. No, just this is, the Christians, this is how you're to do it. Ephesians 5. Families, children, and masters and slaves. This is how Christians do it. Marriage, this is how the he doesn't it, he doesn't try to establish national laws for marriage, national instructions for parents and children, or uh, national international structure for masters and slaves. No, just in the church. It would, be, yeah. it, would be, it would also be impossible because he's saying that the people would have the spiritual capacity to do that because they have the new heart. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. right. right. yeah. That too. That too. Yeah. yeah. That too. Okay. I, I did have a little. So going back to your question, however, yeah. Um, so yeah, the covenantals will say that um, they see uh, they see uh, um, they put Israel and the church uh, in one category in the circle, the people of God. So when God made a promise to Israel, um, he was making a promise to the people of God, right? And so because Israel, and, and, and when the Gospels came, when Israel rejected Messiah, the, the, the Israelites no, kind of left that circle. They just kind of, they're no longer the people of God. And now it's just the church. And so that's, that's how they justify these promises made to Israel, the nation Israel, will say, well, hey, if, 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 if Israel's out of the picture, then, then did God, didn't God lie? I mean, he promised them, and they'll say, no, he made a promise to the people of God, and the church is the people of God, and we're basically the same thing. Yes. And so that's, that's how God fulfills his promise to the church uh, even though he made that promise to Abraham and his descendants in one nation. Because they're all in this category of the people of God. Mm -hmm. but that's, that's bad theology. Oh, tell me about it. I think that's, yeah. that's bad theology, but they, they use that loophole and then there's ways for them to play along with it because they, they can say, well, Abraham is the father of faith. Whoever has to be of Abraham, something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know how. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think um, when Abraham received the promise, when Moses received the promise, when all the Israelites received the promise throughout the Old Testament, their thinking in their mind is that this promise is made to us in nation. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking a church. They're not thinking church of Gentiles. Right. So God knows what they're thinking, and then to say, well, "Oh, sorry, this was really made to the church," it almost feels like He was lying to Abraham and Moses and all the Jews, because, like, He speak He's supposed to He's speaking to them for, uh, initially, right? With, with specificity, and, and He's 
His intention is to be clear, Quite. right? To be understood. Mm-hmm. And that's what Moses and Abraham and everybody else, they're assuming as well. Yeah. Though they're thinking promises to nation. And so for God to be like, oh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, no, it's not the nation, it's actually the church. To me, I, I, you know, Abraham, Moses, they're like, what in the world? Like, like you, you, know, you made it to us. It, it, see, it, it's very clear you're making it to us. Yeah. So the church is kind of a mystery. The church is a mystery. Um, and, um, you know, that's kind of the, kind of the main thing. It's the main thing that they're saying. The, cur- the curses went to Israel. The curses all went to Israel. Uh, we, we got all the church, got all the blessings. And so that's why they, that's why they call it replacement theology. Okay. Or we call it, they wouldn't call it replacement theology. But we're saying it is basically replacement theology because you're saying the church has replaced Israel. Um, to me, if, if, if you're going to make that shift, to me, I would think God would include a book to explain the shift. Like yeah. clearly, like chapter after chapter. Hey, I'm changing, I'm changing the rules. I'm explaining why I did it. Uh, this is why I did it. To me, you have to explain that shift because that's a, that's a pretty big shift to me, right? Yeah. To be like, uh, you know, some, you know, Paul, uh, Joel, uh, my inher- I'm giving my inheritance to you two when I die. Uh, you're, you two are my, you two are my sons. I'm giving my inheritance to my sons. I die. The will says, uh, Dave and Henry, because they're my sons too. It's like, wait a minute. You know, well, they're my sons as well. You know, you know, not officially speaking, you know, but in my heart, they're my sons. Same category of sons. I didn't lie. Uh, you know, I, I didn't promise I would give it to my sons. You know, I mean, my two sons are like that in the world. That's a lie. And you promised it to us. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's how it feels like. And, uh, your, your conversation yeah. has huge, huge practical, huge practical uh, implications. Yeah. Uh, the, the logical conclusion of replacement theology is called dominion theology. Then, then we start legislating morality. Then, then the church had done that throughout the ages. We, we legislated the prohibition. The prohibition created organized crime in this country. Right, right. The prohibition was lifted, organized crime started dealing drugs. Right, right. From alcohol to heroin. The church, right. the church did that. Right. By mm-hmm. applying consistently replacement theology. Right, right. Uh, get country X back to God is an application of replacement theology. It can have right. horrendous right. implications. Right, right. Exactly. So when you kind of uh, confuse the church and the nation, you, mm-hmm. you have the you have uh, the situation when, when we uh, that we had in the Middle Evil Ages, where the church and the state were together, where there was a national church, everybody got baptized, right? Because uh, you know you had this, you know, the church is the new Israel, yeah. and church and state work together, and so yeah, you, you have those type of implications when you don't get it. That's why you have you know Calvin part of murdering a heretic, you know, because that was the law in the Old Testament, so that's how he justifies it, because he didn't understand that distinction mm-hmm. between nation and church, right? Oh, okay. So that's the problem that he made. And, and, and I think, you know, and then, you know, with that, you have this kind of argument between millennial kingdom and heaven, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, you know, millennium, to me, I think one of the most powerful uh Powerful 
arguments for a millennial kingdom is Zechariah 14. But you don't have to read it now. But if you're reading Zechariah 14, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is Zechariah 14 describing? Right? Is it like way describing the little children playing the snake? No, no, that's Isaiah. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's it, but Zechariah 14. So it can only be describing three things. You have three options. The church age, which is probably the worst option you can make. Heaven, or the millennial kingdom. Right? Uh, probably the, so heaven and, let's rule out the church age, because that's just really hard to uh, interpret it that way. But if you have heaven or, or millennial kingdom, if you say heaven, then heaven is like really Jewish. Because everybody has to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Like heaven, you have to celebrate this Jewish festival, right? In verse uh, 18 and 19. Like why in heaven would you have to uh, practice this Jewish festival, right? That's so strange. But it only makes sense if it's a millennial kingdom. When Israel is the centerpiece of that millennial kingdom, and where the millennial kingdom has these heavenly qualities, this kind of transformed world, animals are tame, the, the, the weather is different, the, the sun is the light of Christ, but people die and you practice the Feast of Booze and people are punished. So to me, Zechariah 14, I mean, I think is a very powerful argument for this millennial kingdom. And if it's a millennial kingdom, therefore, uh, it necessitates that uh, the promises made to the nation Israel will be fulfilled by God. And Romans 9-11, the uh, replacement theology cut it like Thomas Jefferson was cutting parts of the Bible. Right, right, right. With Caesars. Yeah, yeah. They they have to, they have no choice. Yeah, there's a lot of clear passages that, that are that are that are I think for for that. But Zechariah 14, I think, um, is like not many people mention that, but I mm-hmm. I think uh, it's a really strong one. I gotta I gotta read my uh, my commentary. Don't read that from the <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. yeah. I, I did have a question. So sure. I don't think it's important, but I just wanted to come yeah. Where did they get food and drink for seventy four people? They just kind of said, "Well, mm-hmm. hell, God." I, I kind of. Know what you might say? Maybe you bought it with them, or maybe God provided it. They beheld that's you know, verse verse eleven. We're back to yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Exodus twenty four. Yeah. They beheld, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. I mean, it's a wonderful picture, but like, <laughs> where the oh, they probably oh, brought they had like backpacks. Like yeah. <laughs> Logistically, but is the catering, the catering, um, yeah, I guess so. It's possible. Okay. Totally possible. Okay. That would have been nice. Yeah. Um, now, having now, now, what's going to be interesting tomorrow is the king's coronation, mm-hmm. five thirty. Mm-hmm. And if you have some time tonight, I want to encourage you to listen to Al Mohler's the briefing. Mm-hmm. He gives a little preview of the coronation tomorrow. Tomorrow, and what he says in it, what he said in it, I listened to it today this morning, is that the coronation, um, uh, at its ba- in its basic element finds its roots in the coronation of Jewish kings and Davidic kings. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you'll see tomorrow is kind of a, a basic picture of how Israel anointed and consecrated their kings. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of biblical themes tomorrow tomorrow morning that you'll see 
but uh, because King Charles is such a uh, a new age guy, you're gonna you might see differences, you might see surprises where it's like sub biblical, but it's, it should be interesting uh, nonetheless. So no. five five thirty a.m. and ten a.m. Now, now that you real quick, that now that you put this, I was reading an article. Somebody emailed me and said, "Hey, make a video and then warn people." So, when when Israel when they were anointing, you know, the kings, did they have to pledge allegiance to the king? Um, did they have? Or, but I don't know. I don't know. So, so this is for the first time this is being done in history. Yeah. The people will not take part of the ceremony. It's never been done before. The people in the Abbey will have to pledge allegiance to the king. Yeah, yeah. And then they call it the chorus of millions. They also, if you're watching, you'll be asked to also pledge allegiance to the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you're not, you know, British or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that that was kind of interesting. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of weird, weird, you know. Uh, not to say like every single detail mm-hmm. is like the coronation of the uh, Davidic king, but the you know the basic thrust. Okay. Where you have, I think it's like the high priest anoints the king, and you'll see that tomorrow. The high priest mm-hmm. will anoint the king, and the song will be that's being played is Zadok's. The song of Zadok, whatever. That's the song that'll be played tomorrow. Just like Zadok anointed David, right? Oh, so those yeah. kind of elements are going to be there. Okay. Um, a lot of details are ob- obviously accretions and you know people's figment of imagination. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different elements that were involved in the anointing of a of a of a king of Israel mm-hmm. and the anointing of a king tomorrow. Okay. And then Moeller will do a recap Monday, and he will talk about kind of a fuller explanation of. What was different? Mm-hmm. What was a King Charles thing? A King Charles New Age religion guy? Mm-hmm. What was traditional? And what kind of related to Old Testament? And, okay. and, and all, that also also is, you know, the similarities is also uh, this, I think, confusion of church as the new Israel. Mm-hmm. So it has that kind of theology. So okay. that too. But it's still, it's just still, still fun and fascinating. To get a small glimpse of what what the anointing of a of a king of Israel would have been like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it would have been awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Like the line of David, the Messiah coming. I'm sure in that day and era, the pageantry and the weightiness would have been would have been huge. I mean, mm-hmm. for David to be anointed as king, I think that would have been a, that would have been a huge ceremony, you know. And so some of the some, uh, 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 Elements of just some of the gravitas mm-hmm. you might see tomorrow, you know. What 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 book like from, from the Bible would you think somebody would need to read? Maybe First Samuel to kind of like understand. Oh, you know, there's you have to read a lot of the, um, yeah, First Samuel, Second Samuel, some of the uh, Psalms as well. Okay. You, you know, First uh, Kings, Second Kings, maybe First okay. Second Chronicles, maybe. Okay. Um, so Psalms first and second Samuel. Maccabees. <laughs> so okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we would be remiss not to mention though in, in light of uh, Exodus twenty four maybe the 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 blood of Christ uh, putting an end to that blood. And uh, Mount Zion being the accessible mount that we have come to. 
I'm, I'm not, not Mount Sinai. Absolutely. Uh, yep. How much better we have it. They were not allowed anywhere near. And we are invited. You, you, made, you made an excellent point, Pastor George. When, when people are walking, that's my last comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when people are walking, they don't have like clean washing machine or whatever the case may be. They're walking with the blood on them. And then when you said that, I went to uh, Hebrews 9 22, yeah. and it's just it's with the, that blood. Yeah. They look dirty, however, they're yeah. clean at the same yeah. time. Yeah. That's when they can draw near to God. I think yeah. I thought that was, that was yeah. excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you had those stains on your clothes yeah. that would just remain for, for a while. Actually, the blood sprinkling was a cleaning people, the laundry detergent. Uh, Hebrews 9.22, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness. Mm-hmm. 